Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello singing a song of freedom. Like many of you, Tom Morello chooses to stand consistently and generously on the freedom side, creating a steady drumbeat and a consistent soundtrack that celebrates freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Alim and I are gathered here with you, under the tree, for our seminar on freedom. We take inspiration from the freedom schools, brilliantly brought to life in Mississippi in 1964, but finding expressions in workplaces today, in prisons, schools, and community centers, anywhere and anytime, people come together to create an insurgent and beloved community and ask once more the fundamental questions, where in the world are we? And where are we in the world? How can we best name this social, political, historic moment? What is to be done now in our ongoing search for freedom? We're bound together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. We begin each episode with a poem. Here's a short lyric from Gil Scott Heron and the Last Poets. Dream on, dreamer, and see the pink moon rise, and understand that everything you say is something between honesty and lies. Dream on, dreamer, and you will spin and turn, lose and learn, rise and shine, fall and find. That's Gil Scott Heron and the last poets, Dream on, dreamer. And here is a ballad I wrote in the midst of the cold snap. While snow and night fell cold outside, a winter witch stayed warm. She turned her oven up to high, sang softly at the storm. We used to sit together, love, our table set for two. Eating lamb and baked potatoes, you said your love was true. But now, my table's set for one, my heart fumes cold and blue. And as with baked potatoes, love, I'll skin and season you. Ballad of the Winter Witch Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to create a short, authentic, and spontaneous piece from nowhere. The nowhere of the underground, the nowhere of under the tree, and the nowhere of utopia. Here is today's prompt. Forty years from now, what do you think a group of high school seniors in a history class might look back at this moment and say either, thank you for fighting for that, or what were you possibly thinking? Okay, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. When school is geared to the absorption of facts, learning becomes exclusively and exhaustively selfish, and there's no obvious social motive for it. 
when the measure of success is competitive, people are turned against one another, and every difference becomes a score for somebody and a wound for someone else. Getting ahead of others is a major goal, and mutual aid and assistance, which can be so entirely natural, is severely restricted or even banned. The frenzy of testing is a big part of what can be thought of as a growing audit culture. The seemingly endless requests for data, value-added measures, quantifiable products, and one form after another to be filled out and filed by teachers. The audit culture changes the nature of intellectual inquiry and teaching into matters of consumption, intense competition, hierarchy, and privatized property. The result is the eclipse of the public and the destruction of the commons. While faculty may struggle against these demands here or there, what's often missed in these skirmishes is the deeper meaning and the wider contexts, a tightening death grip on the throat of education, and an attack on the fundamental principles of schools for free people, critical thought, free inquiry, democratic community, and promoting the common good. Wreckage lies in the wake of the manufactured obsession with student and teacher accountability, Incidentally, coupled with zero accountability for foundations, corporations, hedge funds, bankers, and their government managers, the fateful weakening of the intellectual independence and the destruction of democratic life. Some years ago, I read a long article about Steinway pianos, how the iconic instruments are constructed, what makes them the gold standard in the field, and why each one is unique, different from every other. I remember a wonderful scene in the story in which pianists, potential buyers, come into the Steinway showroom and spend significant time moving from instrument to instrument, gauging the quality, the tone, the subtle suitability of this one as opposed to that one. The most interesting part of the story to me was set in the Steinway workshop where craftsmen lovingly assemble the pianos. Each Steinway Grand has an astonishing 12,000 separate parts, and while Steinway has all manner of quality control, each one is unique. Perhaps it's the wood, they say, because no matter how carefully they select and prepare each batch, some trees get more sunlight than others in the forest, some get more water. Technicians at Steinway say, quote, uncontrollable factors make the difference. It was an absolutely charming article, and I loved it. At about the same time I read the Steinway piece, I read a press release from the Business Roundtable and their Education and Workforce Task Force. You can't manage what you don't measure, it instructed. No executive can run a business without accurate, granular data that explains what's working and what's not. Our school system should be no different. Ah, yes. The business roundtable. Keep those eight-year-old widgets moving down the assembly line. Any third grade teacher can tell you that each child is unique, the one of one, but mention that to the business roundtable and they'll tell you that teachers can't be trusted because they're just spouting, quote, anecdotal evidence when what's demanded is granular data. Funny thing, remember those 12,000 parts in every Steinway? Complicated, right? Here's an interesting comparison. There are 100 billion neurons in a third grader's brain. And remember the, quote, uncontrollable factors that impact each piano? Okay, each kid shows up in class with a culture and a language, a background, a family and a community, a history and a set of aspirations, an entire vast kaleidoscope of uncontrollable factors. So what counts and who's counting? 
For what purpose and toward what social end? One of the most corrosive elements in my world is the massive and ubiquitous enterprise of ranking systems, as deceptive as it is deadly and destructive, and the most toxic is the annual Best Colleges Report from U.S. News and World Report, which has grown like Topsy, with its tentacles now stretching in all directions, best law schools and med schools and business schools and even the best high schools. The list of the best hundred colleges in the United States is fascinating. The number of weighted variables U.S. News and World Report relies on for its annual guide is seven. The percent of the total score awarded to, quote, undergraduate academic reputation is 22.5%. It's no wonder, then, that Harvard is number one, because Harvard has an undergraduate reputation that's worth 22.5%. Penn State can't come close because it doesn't have the same reputation. So what, after all, are they measuring? One of the big problems with the U.S. News and World Report rankings is they have the audacity to try to be both comprehensive and heterogeneous. They can't do both well, and actually they do neither. But the ranking system aspires to be heterogeneous. It doesn't just compare Penn State, University of Illinois, University of Washington, or the University of Texas with each other. It compares those big public universities with private schools like Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. So in that sense, it's trying to be heterogeneous. On the other hand, it's trying to be comprehensive. It doesn't just compare along one dimension, the test scores say, but it tries to do all dimensions. And that means that it's comparing Penn State, say, with Yeshiva University on a zillion measures. But take just Penn State. The campus at University Park is so complex. It's an institution with dozens of schools and departments, 4,000 faculty, 45,000 students, and how on earth do you manage to compare any of those things? It's also a public school. It's inexpensive. People come from all over Pennsylvania and really all over the world to attend Penn State. So the idea that you can compare these things and come up with something that's reasonable is a bit insane in its own right. Some years ago, a researcher gave 100 lawyers a list of 10 law schools and asked them to rank them from best to worst. And of course, Harvard and Yale were among the best, and it was very obvious where the others fell. But what was interesting about this piece of research is that Penn State ranked fifth. Out of 10 schools that he gave out, Penn State ranked fifth, according to 100 lawyers who apparently had some knowledge or expertise about law schools. Fascinating, Penn State didn't have a law school at that point. They didn't have a law school at that time. And so that meant that reputation ranked Penn State in the middle because Penn State's kind of in the middle. But that's the flaw in these kind of rankings. That's one of the flaws in these rankings. Let's go to the question of the best high schools. The number of weighted variables that Newsweek uses to determine the thousand best high schools in America is six. The percentage that they assign to on-time graduation, graduates accepted to college, and AP tests per student are 25%, 25%, and 25%. Get it? So they weight these variables and they have one quarter, one quarter, one quarter go to things like on-time graduation, graduates accepted to college, and AP tests per student. Okay, so of the top 50 Newsweek schools, the number with selective admission policies is 37. And you take a place like um, Basis Scottsdale, which is the name of a school, 
the percentage of students at Basis Scottsdale, the third best school on the list of the thousand best high schools, the number who are white or Asian is 95%. The percent of Asians in Arizona and Basis respectively, 2.8 in Arizona, 41% in Basis respectively. The percent of Hispanics in Arizona, 33%. The percent of Hispanics in Basis, 2 So there you are. You know, you end up with a ranking that's really ranking class and background has nothing to do with what's best or what's best for the common good. And this is one of the huge flaws. Of course, at some level, human behavior can be quantified and predicted, and that's true. And sometimes big data can be quite useful. We know, for example, that smoking cigarettes for decades will likely undermine your health. Incidentally, I did smoke cigarettes for decades. We can know that not wearing a seatbelt will likely result in a person suffering more serious injuries in a catastrophic car accident. That's big data. That's statistics. That's quantitative research. And that's a good thing. If you flip a coin, the question is, is it weighted or fair? If you get two heads in a row, okay, it might be fair or it might be weighted. If you get 20 heads in a row, that's not okay. And that's why scientists have set a threshold of 5% as the agreed upon number for what constitutes statistical significance. And, And the great thing about big data is it guards against flukes. But it has a problem you know, or a pitfall, and that is that big data can also create a trap, which is the data can be too big. So a coin flip is fair unless you get 20 heads in a row. Then it must be weighted, you assume, because statistical significance says so. A fair coin would only do that in one in a million times. But here's the trap. Give fair coins to every American and 300 would get 20 heads in a row. 300 would get 20 heads in a row because it's a one in a million chance. That's big data's strength. It's big data's pitfall. Big data cannot speak with any certainty about an individual. It falls to pieces in the specific, messy, unpredictable realm of individual human behavior. There's a famous story about a Frenchman in 1965. He was 47 years old and he made an agreement with a 90-year-old woman who had a lovely apartment in Paris. He agreed to pay her rent every month, 2,500 francs, until her death when he would get the apartment. The life expectancy at that time was 74.5 years for a French woman. And again, she was 90. The young man, who was 47, died at the age of 77, 30 years later. She outlived him by two years. She lived to be 122 years old. What's wonderful about that is that people are not well represented by average. After all, the average person has one testicle and one breast. So we should be skeptical about numbers. We should be skeptical about rankings. But we should also remember that statistics and rankings are not just random guesses. They are more than that. They are guesses backed up by reasoning. And assumptions don't make logic fiction, but more like a kind of controlled experiment. So we should look at data. We should be informed by data. But we should not check our ethical sensibilities, our moral imaginations, or our politics at the door. We should look with skepticism. Let's also remember what W.E.B. Du Bois always instructed. Science, he said, and we can add science and math, is a great mistress, but there is one greater 
and that is humanity itself. It's time now for our guest speaker series, activists, authors, academics, and artists after hours, where we talk to people who we hope will help us think more deeply and clearly about the world we inhabit, name this political moment, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for peace, freedom, and justice. We release our most radical imaginations and ask both what's going on, and then equally important, what is to be done. I'm grateful to be joined today by Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez, a professor of Mathematics Education and Latino and Latina Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. The focus of her scholarship is arm-in-arm, shoulder-to-shoulder with the issues we talk about here under the tree. Race and class and language, white and male supremacy, decolonizing our minds, reimagining our lives, and building our futures. But but Dr. Gutierrez is going to take us even deeper and further. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always great to talk to you. It's terrific. And I, I want to get right into it. And as I say, I think you're going to take us on a journey we're not used to because we, we focus on history and, and language and so many things. But it's unusual for us to get into the world of math and science. And yet you will take us there in a in a way that's unique. So I guess I want to, I want to begin by saying I've read a lot of your work. It's really admirable ground groundbreaking work. Um, and I wonder if you could um, begin us off by talking about something you assert all the time, which is that mathematics is political. Mathematics education is political. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I guess what I mean by that is that, you know, mathematics as an activity, as a human activity, means that if we as humans are doing any activity, uh, we bring with it all the power dynamics that come, all the histories that come with um, what humans have done and how we've been in relation to land and water and to each other um, on this planet. And so there, when people say to me, you know, like, oh, why are you making things political? Or why do you want teachers to be activists? Or, you know, why are you doing this stuff when two plus two is four, no matter where you go? You know, I have to just respond with, um, first of all, two plus two equals four is not the whole of mathematics. That's, you know, that's a very small version of, of mathematics. And um, we can even question that depending on what rules we want to consider in terms of um, what those twos are representing. And, and, but I think more importantly, I think we have to recognize that at least in school mathematics, um, everybody's an activist. Um, Everybody, everybody's an activist because some people are actively protecting the status quo mm. and others are trying to dismantle a system that's dehumanizing and that has colluded with anti-blackness and colonialism. And so when people say you're making it political, all I'm trying to do is recognize or help people see that everything is political. Um, everything has those power dynamics in it. So I don't mean political and partisan, you know, Republican, Democratic kind of ways. I'm meaning it in terms of power dynamics. Um, so. Yeah, so every, you know, all teaching is political and mathematics is particularly political. I mean, I think that's the piece that I think is so important for people to kind of unpack because I think people can look at, you know, history, social studies, English, some of these other subjects and say like, oh yeah, those are political because some people's histories are left out or because we have certain authors that are, you know, the only people that we read and people don't see that we have the same in mathematics. Um, mm -hmm. And the way that mathematics operates as a kind of proxy for intelligence in society means there's all these other things that come with it 
that are not just about whether you learn math and go on to the next math um, class, but like how you're viewed in society. Anyhow, I can go on and on. I, 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 no, I want to know more. I, I, I know I want you to go further. Actually, I want to, when you say a proxy for intelligence, what do you mean? What does that mean? Well, so I mean, the fact that we, the fact that at least in the United States, and I think throughout most of the world, the fact that we choose to use mathematics to identify somebody as smart, um, anything that's based on mathematics. So mathematics is the, the kind of foundation for all of the STEM fields. And so if you tell somebody you're a mathematician, you tend to get one kind of, well, you tend to get several responses, but one of the responses you'll often get is, wow, you must be so smart. Right? Uh-huh. And, the, and the other response that you tend to get, so I call that the adulation. And you often tend to get the, what I call the confession, but now I'm today calling the inoculation, which is the, I was never very good at math. And I call it an inoculation because I say, I used, I used to say it was a confession because people want to offer that up, that they're not good. But I say it's an inoculation because I think people are trying to um, offer that up first before you do it. Because they think that in the conversation with a mathematician, it's going to come out that I don't really know what I'm talking about mathematically or I'm not very smart. And so I want to say that first to save myself the harm and mm. the violence that's going to come from being reminded that I'm not part of this group of people who are seen as smart in society. But it's a, it's a choice. It's an aesthetic choice that we make to put mathematics in that place and to say that's the proxy for intelligence. We, I've been saying for years, you know, we could use something like, you know, well, how artistic are you? Or mm. how well do you relate to people? Mm. Or how holistically can you think? Those can all be measures of how smart or intelligent somebody is. But we use mathematics. And because we do that, there are consequences for people. All teachers are identity workers because you're helping inform the identities that your students will continue to have the rest of their lives, regardless of whether they go into a science field. Mm. And, and I, you hear it with people when you speak to adults. You're on a plane, you're on a bus, you're in, you know, whatever, at a party, and you speak to people. Um, right away, they, they can offer up to you the trauma that mm. they've experienced through mathematics. I'm glad you clarified that because I was about to do the confession inoculation thing and, and you stopped me. So thank you. Um, but, but let's go back. You say everybody's, everybody's got intelligence as all kinds of them, but everybody's got math intelligence too. I mean, I think of, of school math has a particular kind of meaning. But if you go back, I was an early childhood teacher. Everyone was good at math. Everyone was good at art. Everyone was good at music. By the third grade, they had already sorted themselves out and somehow, the institution of schooling had convinced them that they weren't good at all those things, right? So it's talk about that a little bit, this question of, is everybody good at, at, is everybody mathematical? Is that a normal, natural attribute? Yeah, I mean, it is a normal attribute of us as humans trying to make sense of our world. I mean, mathematics is just the study of patterns. And we're constantly having to study patterns to move through this world, right? We make choices based on previous things that we've seen, those experiences that we've had and we calculate in our heads like you know okay if I want to if I don't want to be late for school I need to get up at this hour how many times can I hit the snooze button before I'm actually late because I know how long it's going to take me to brush my teeth okay if I don't brush my teeth but I drink a cup of coffee could I get I mean those are all calculations people are making all the time when women are putting away women mostly I say it's a gendered thing but when people are putting away food leftovers and they're looking at a round you know pot 
and then they're putting it into a rectangular prism, a square container, and they're mm-hmm. having to decide like what size container am I going to get out? They're not they're not taking out a measuring tape and going, well, you know, areas, length times, width times, height, and then I need to think about, you know, the surface area of this and what, they're not doing that. Mm. But we're doing this mathematical activity all the time, the spatial reasoning, the, the kind of calculations, the, all the different permutations and combinations that are going through our heads about like all the options of things that we could do at any given time. And then what might be the consequences of those and how can we adjust any one of the things that are part of our um, recursive um, patternings that we're that we're following, um, how can we adjust any one of those so that we can omit a variable and can buy ourselves some more time? Or can you know, like, so uh, if you're looking, for example, at putting away food, you might decide, well, okay, if I put the lid on, that's gonna that's gonna require that it, it's the perfect volume. But if I don't want to, if I'm allowed to have a little more space, I could put saran wrap on top of that, mm, and so it's yeah. I can go over. But we're making these kinds of calculations all the time. We're doing this kind of reasoning, and that doesn't count as ma- as mathematics. But I think the powerful thing that can feel depressing to people, like you know, why doesn't that count? But I think the powerful thing is that as humans, we continue to do that even when school doesn't sanction it. So mm. even when we've been told that we're not good at mathematics, we still, it's still in, embodied and embedded in, embedded in us to continue to do this stuff because it makes sense to us. So people are going to continue to do forms of mathematics, even when, you know, somebody's not looking over our shoulder in some kind of surveillance way and saying, are you representing it in the right way? Are you doing the right version of that? Have you written a book called Everyday Math, or is there a book called Everyday Math? I feel like there ought to be, because it it it, it kind of de, um, I don't know, it demystifies it when you when I hear you talking about it. We are all mathematical. Math is a language that helps us make our ways through the world, and we all do it all the time, whether it's you know figuring out our transportation or figuring out our food or figuring out our budget or figuring out, you know, how to get from here to there. Math is there, but somehow it's not sanctioned because it's not school math. Maybe that's what I'm getting at. School math, a kind of formal abstraction, trip, I think trips a lot of people, including me, up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You think that's right? Yeah. And, and when we think about like think about language and we say, you know, we could get out the grammar police and we can make people feel bad about you used the wrong word here, you're using it in the wrong way. But when we think about language, what really matters is communication, right? Mm. So if, if we can successfully communicate to somebody, I mean, we, we play with language all the time. You think about how we break rules in English all the time, right? There's swear words. There's other, I mean, people say like, how are you doing? People say real good. Right. right. People, I mean, and and that's, these things just become accepted. They become part right. of what people understand you to mean, even if you're not following the correct rules. Right. right? But why don't we have that in mathematics? I mean, why do, in everyday life, you don't need to explain to somebody your rationale. You don't need to show your work or represent <laughs> it in a way that's sanctioned right. by somebody else as long as it works, as long as the pattern that you're following makes sense, as long as... And I think the other piece that we miss is that, you know, all these other disciplines have moved on. I mean, why is it that in mathematics we are so stuck? I mean, again, I come back to English because it's one of the things I feel like I I think about a lot in its kind of parallel version. But, you know, we have graphic novels are considered, you know, text. We have... um, 
you know, cereal boxes are text. The world is text. We don't have, we don't, we haven't like, you know, kept ourselves in this like, you know, straight jacket of like, it's, if it's not a novel or if it's not in print or if it's not this thing, then it's not about literacy or it's not English or it's not language or it's not. And yet in mathematics, that's kind of what we've done to people through school, right? Mm. We've said, these are the only sanctioned versions that we're going to count. I mean, I think you're right. I think the the assault on the on the canon in regard to language has been pretty wonderful. But I still do think there's the language police, and they're operating all the time trying to trying to put stakes in the boundary. and And those boundaries are often about race and class. They're often this slang doesn't work. But then you notice, for example through the National Basketball Association and a lot else, black slang does come into the, into the mainstream and then it is kind of accepted and people are, are, are talking a kind, of, uh, a kind of dialect that would have been not sanctioned 20 years ago. But the police are still there in language and certainly the police are there in math and science. I mean, this is science, this isn't science, you know. This is, uh, I, I often think, when I, go, I want to go back just to thinking about little kids because that's where I come from. I was a, an early childhood teacher for years. But I often think about kids learning to ride a bike. I, af- I often ask my students, you know how to ride a bike? And they say yes. And I say, when you're, when you're riding along and you start, tipping to the right where do you turn the wheel where and they say uh left no you have to turn it to the right if you're falling to the right you turn the wheel to the right everyone knows it who can ride a bike but can you explain it in terms of a gyroscope that you're sitting in a gyroscope and the gyroscope requires certain you know you can't explain it but you can do it and i and i often think that we get too crazy in school learning uh, of stripping people away from their experiences instead of building on and amplifying. And I think in math, that's maybe true in spades. Maybe it's just true in extreme. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of like, I think about social algorithms. I think about things that we do in response to other people. Like, so let's say that you're at a a large football game and somebody starts to do the wave. Everybody knows it's embodied. Everybody knows how to perform that algorithm. But nobody is saying to themselves, okay, once the person next to me's legs are at 90 degrees, once their knees reach this part, and then they're, now I'm about, now my elbows should reach up, and now my fingers should be at about my, elbow, my shoulder length, and now they'll come to the top. Of my, it's not that. It's that we know how to respond in a bodily way, in a visceral kind of connected relationship way that's not coded by an algorithm that's some kind of a universal outside of us um, programming. And I think that that's, that's where we need to get to, because if we, if we want people to be in this field of mathematics and if we want mathematics to change, which I, I do, then if, then we need to be able to give people permission to perform it without having to kind of universalize it and generalize it and come up with like the most compact form in a symbolic way to say, you know, it. Yeah. Abstract and symbolic. Yeah. So, so expand on that. I've never heard that concept of a social algorithm. Why are you calling it an algorithm? Well, it's an algorithm because an algorithm is basically just set of a, a set of instructions based on, so it's mathematics is axiomatic, right? So mathematics says that we start with these postulates. We start with a set of rules and then we're going to fall. We're going to play our game within this universe of these rules. And so if the rule is that you need to produce 
um, the next thing in the pattern. Your body needs to be the next thing in the pattern and it needs to repeat the pattern. Well, the first part of the pattern is the raising of the legs. And then the last thing in the pattern is the raising of the arms as your body is extending, right? So there's a, there is, a, there is a, a set of rules that are being followed, but they're not a set of rules that are um, written down or are somehow universalized. So like different body sizes will need to know when to mm. start to stand with what, you know, all, all different things come into how we are um, experiencing that socially, mm. right? Um, so again, I, I just think that we need to be, when, when, when we're conscious, of what school mathematics is doing to us, how it is formatting our lives, how it's formatting our bodies. Um, I mean, I think about, you know, one of the biggest violence, forms of violence that I think mathematics does to people in school is that it teaches you, when, if we think about the fact that mathematics is a proxy for intelligence, so it's something that people generally want to be seen as smart, and we think about the over-privileging of abstraction and universality, it basically means to be good at mathematics, at least early on, to be good at mathematics, you have to be willing to be devoid of your body and mm. context. So you have mm. to be able to ignore your, your context and your relationship with others because what matters in the school mathematics classroom is the general form, the general rule, the most, um, uh, the most universal you know, it's the, it's the symbolic, it's the equation or it's the, the formula that's going to rule all cases. And so what happens with that is that very young kids, um, you know, we, we, we were born with a set of manipulatives at the end of our fingers, right? We have 10 manipulatives right there. We got 20 if we count our, our toes. In other countries, um, in Papua New Guinea, you know, it, the, the counting system starts from the pinky and it comes all the way down the wrist, through the elbow, through the whole body. And the body is a calculator. So there's like a base, I think wow. it's 16. I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly, but there's a way that you calculate through the body, right? But, you know, little kids, think about, think about one of people's early memories about, about at least counting, little kids will count on their fingers, right? And by the time they're about four, about four or five, they get into school and right away they are taught. That's a primitive way of counting. Don't count mm. on your fingers. So you see people who like have, there's this kind of residual trauma that people carry with them. People will put their hands under tables and still count on their thighs, but hide their hands, right? And it's like, why would we do that? Why would we want to divorce ourselves from our bodies? And I'm not saying that like everyone should rely on their fingers to count everything for it for all reasons. But what that tells me is that at a very early age, we've asked people to give up your body in order to do this thing called mathematics that we asked you to do it too early. So you couldn't actually conceptualize and, and, and formalize for yourself what this thing about counting means or what a base 10 system means. And mm. so you, you feel ashamed that mm. you'd have to revert back to your fingers. And yet that is a very tactile way of thinking about quantity and number. Right. You know, I think about my one of my sons who, to this day, he's in his 40s now. And when he wants to know which side is left, he feels for his earring. He has an earring in his left ear, but it's bodily, it's physical. And 
I think he knows his left side, but I think it's useful to him that he has this kind of physical reminder. And and you're killing me with this idea that we're told to not count on our fingers. I can remember being told that counting on your fingers was a sign of, of stupidity. And that strikes me today as so backwards. Counting on your fingers makes perfect sense. I'm bringing my manipulatives with me. You know, I don't need blocks and Cuisinay rods to start. That is really a fantastic insight. I'd never thought of that. Um, but the other thing I want to go back to is you, you started our conversation by saying, you know, people go two plus two equals four. It's always the same. But what that strips out and what I hear you now saying is that strips out not only context, but it strips out ethics. It strips out um, history. It strips out a sense of who we are in relationship to one another uh, socially. So I'm suddenly thinking to the extent that math does a good job of abstracting itself, it's taking ethics out of the equation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when, if we think about, you know, I think about mathematics as dispossession. I think school mathematics actually dispossesses us of the kinds of knowings that we carry with us. And I think in particular from an indigenous perspective, the complexity that people have of being able to think about um, all the different ways that we can know through dreaming, through making, through singing, through dancing, through observing, through listening, through like all the different ways that we can know. And then recognizing that nothing is ever a simple algorithm that we follow in life because we are all related. We always have to be thinking about what's the right thing to do right now, not what's the correct thing. Like what's the algorithm that I follow. And so, you know, we act as if, you know, mathematics has no ethics, but it's actually kind of like saying mathematics has no politics. I think it, it does have an ethics of kind of um, protect protect the status quo if you want to keep it in that, in that way. Right. Um, Because, but because it's, we tend to use mathematics to think about representing the world as opposed to intervening in the world. And so I've, I've written about something called living mathematics and living mathematics is saying, how do you spell that? How do you spell that mathematics? So it looks, it's M A T H E M A T X. TX, okay. It looks like you would print. It's like it's like mathematics, except replace the ICS with mm. an X. And you pronounce it mathematesh. Mathematesh, because the tesh, the X, the X is pronounced sh because that's to um, uh, to honor Nahuatl, the language, the Mayan language. Mm. And so, um, but it's this idea that, like, what if we actually started, if we followed a certain kind of metaphysics. And we wanted to have a mathematics that wasn't just, you know, representational as in like giving us back that which already is, but we actually wanted to intervene in the world. And if the world is pattern, then how do we intervene with pattern? Well, part of it, I argue, is that it's that we could, we could base it on any kind of values. But if we want to bring values into it, what if we had a form of doing mathematics that actually, um, that actually supported notions of, well, values that I was brought up on. So I say in Lakech, which is the Mayan concept of you're another version of me, I'm another version of you. Nepantla, which is uh, an Aztec um, notion of um, kind of neither here nor there, kind of interstitial space and reality, but also a way of being in the world. 
and reciprocity. So the, the in lakech part says, what if pattern became a way for us to see all of the ways that I am a version of you and you are a version of me? Mm. So if we just take this to be like, okay, if we're talking about in a school system, um, we have these things in the United States that's called the Common Core State Standards. And mm. we have practice standards in mathematics. And so one of the standards is to construct a viable argument and to critique the reasoning of others. But that very notion of constructing an argument and critiquing the reasoning of others for me feels like it's already a very individualistic activity that you're doing this thing and then you're critiquing others rather than like how can, how can mathematics be a way for us to connect with each other, to, to see ourselves in others and to see others in us. And so one way mm. we could do that would be to say, what if instead of, constructing the argument and then critiquing the reasoning of others, we said, what if we want to first appreciate the reasoning of others? So how might I look at another way, student, a student who's next to me in class, wow. how might I look at the way that they're doing this work and say, wow, that's like how I was thinking. And yet it's also how I wasn't thinking, right? Like what are the aspects of it that you're giving? And so in what way is that kind of providing for me a window and a mirror onto mm. the world um, that, that I could benefit from? And by doing that, that the form of ethics that's embedded in that or the value system is like it's honoring and it's reaffirming our connection rather than our separateness, right? And the nepantla part is, is the idea that if we have both and neither together, um, that it's both of these and neither of these. Let me give you an example. It's sometimes hard for people to be like, okay, wait, what does that word mean? It means that like people could probably recognize, like, so as a, as a woman of color, in the academy, I am both highly visible, as in every time I walk in the building and I have bright color and I have big earrings and I'm wearing heels and maybe I've got, you know, red lipstick or whatever, but is these are markers for me of like my being, you know, proud of my culture and my, um, my presence, right? Um, and wearing, um, I always wear these big, if you ever see me give talks, I always wear these really bright, big um, scarves. I wear scarves all the time. Mm. And that is like my culture embracing me. It's like having a hug all of the time with that bright color. Mm. Um, and so I'm highly visible. And yet when you think about, and I'm also highly visible because people will say, oh yeah, don't we have a tops system in our university where we got to hire people of color and isn't she one of those tops hires? And so there's gotcha. this visibility, there's this visibility to me when I'm speaking with my graduate students in Spanish, it's like I'm highly visible, right? And yet at the same time, people like us are highly invisible in the sense that like, we're not part of the administration. People don't always value the things that we say at meetings. We, we don't always count. And so it's this notion that you can be highly visible and highly invisible at the same time, not, yes. you know, in the eyes of some people and not in the eyes of others, but literally at the same time, like you're both right there and you're also not right there in that meeting. Right. Um, right. And so if we think about that from the point of view of, of mathematics, how do we help see that a pattern can be both something that is robust, but also flexible at the same time, mm. Mm. rather than trying to find the pattern that is the most robust, which means that, it would, that it's universal, like it will, it will apply in all cases. It doesn't matter where you are, it will always happen. Um, that's a, a version of, that's a value system that we use, right? And then the reciprocity part is saying, 
given that these are the patterns that we're noticing, what's our responsibility? Who are we holding ourselves accountable to or reliable to? And I say that because I think right now we act as if mathematics is just the toolkit or the foundation for the STEM fields. Um, and we don't think about what responsibility we have or what, what role mathematics might play. So mm. we do things like, even right now, there's a lot of emphasis on noting um, mathematicians of color. So we say Katherine Johnson from Hidden Figures was a black mathematician people didn't always know of, or you know, Lonnie Johnson or whoever. But all of the versions of the people that we can pull out for the most part are people who worked at NASA, who worked mm. on fighter pilots, jets propulsions, who've done, you know, like these things that like, is that really, is that how we want mathematics to work in our world? So for me, Living Mathematesh would say, if we took those three principles and said, we want to, when we're thinking about pattern, we want to be thinking about how we see ourselves and others and others and us, how it's both and neither at the same time in any given pattern, and what's our sense of responsibility in making patterns, remaking patterns, or looking to make other kinds of patterns, um, that would be living mathematics. I love it. My, I, I want to take this to my son, Malik, who is a middle school math teacher and has been for 15 years, because one of the things I've always admired about his classroom, and I've spoken about it often, but it, not in a different context. This takes it to a deeper level. Malik always has, he doesn't have a teacher's desk, but he has his students in pods of six. And he, when he gives them a problem or a thing, a, a concept to work on, he says, I want you all to come to your own conclusions. And when you have a question that none of you can answer together, then come to me. Otherwise, just keep working. And this, and so I always say to my students, he's either incentivizing cheating or he's incentivizing the idea that we're in this together and we can build, we can learn horizontally, collectively. And and I think the the latter, obviously, but this gives me a new kind of, I don't know, a new frame to think about that with. It's, it's uh, very exciting. Um, uh, the other thing that Mathematesh does for me is this, you know, there are two things in our world, in the world of teaching and teacher education, Rochelle, that, that are, that drive me crazy. One is called value added teacher assessment, which drives me nuts. I'd be interested in, in, in your take on that. And the other is the word data driven, the term data driven. When people say we're doing data driven school reform, I want to, I don't know, my head explodes. I want to say, no, it should be child driven, student driven, learn driven, community driven, and data informed, okay. But the idea that data just sits there as this neutral thing absolutely drives me crazy. So maybe a word on value added and a, a word on data driven and your take on it. I, I need to learn from you about these things. Yeah. I mean, the whole value added thing has done such a disservice to teachers in terms of thinking about like, you know, what, what value are teachers adding in terms of tying them to their students' test scores and um, I mean, I think that's just a real deprofessionalization de of teachers because um, what those value added models fail to take into consideration um, oftentimes is uh, all, of the, all of the contextual things that are happening, right? All of the ways in which, you know, the system is the thing that created those, that student and that score in some ways. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. having teachers be kind of uh, admonished or, you know, penalized for us for trying to move a student from one place to another and making it seem as if 
learning can be captured in that kind of minute, you know, space. Um, I think people who teach understand that so much of teaching is planting seeds. And so you can't measure the outcomes of those seeds um, within a short period of time. And so I think those value added models, you know, fail to take that into consideration that oftentimes you can't actually see the outcomes of what value you've given in this space. But again, even that is assuming that, you know, what we care about are these like outcome driven things that are quantifiable in some universalistic way. Um, the data driven decision making, I think, is a kind of shortcut way for people to, like you say, not care about individual students and context. It's kind of a way where you wash your hands and say like, oh, we're not making any moral decisions here. This is, we're just listening to what the data says. We're just mm. following what the data, and I think that that's where mathematics comes into play as well as where people say this is not political. But data is collected by humans. So whatever decisions were made about what data to collect and what data not to add, you know, we're already hamstrung by that. I mean, that you're, you've already just, you've already got a set of values that are embedded in whatever data you've been given. You know, you can look, for example, just at like, you know, gender and race and things that are much more fluid um, than in social constructions that people are expected to check a box. So then what does that mean when you have X numbers of students who you know, are black. Who decided they were black? Was this some the intake person who was deciding they were black? Was it people self-identifying? Was it, and then what's the purpose of why that information was collected and why wasn't other information collected? For example, from the community or, um, so I think anything that's when people say, oh, it's data driven, you always have to say, okay, so where did the data come from? Who collected mm -hmm. that data and for what purpose? And what mm -hmm. other data could we have collected and, and then what do we do? Then there's a whole nother, you know, what do we do with the data if we have that? But, but we, we don't, we're not really taught to interrogate in that way. And so we end up with these tortured definitions of unemployment or poverty or how much lead in the water is acceptable. And the, these things are never probed I, when you read about them in the press, for example. It's just like, well, this is the statistics on poverty. This is the statistics on who has health insurance. And, and, and it, it kind of lies there flat as if it's God given instead of human constructed. I mean, my brother always says, you know, he, 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 my brother objects to the fact, my brother Rick, who you work with on, on mathematical things, but he says, you know, he objects to the idea that progressives act as if they're interested in the humanities, but not STEM. He says STEM is the humanities. It's constructed by humans. It's contested by humans. It's historical. You should get into it, math, and, and contest it. So, you know, I'll give you one example from Chicago, which, you know, these are just kind of things. I do a lot of playing around with statistics just to try to queer up the, the common sense. But in Chicago, you may know that in Chicago, the percentage of a teacher's evaluation based on students' standardized test scores is 30, 30% of a teacher's evaluation is depends on their high stakes standardized test. The percentage of a teacher's evaluation based on those same scores at the University of Chicago Lab School, where the elite kids go, none. You know, years a new teacher is assigned a formal mentor at lab, three. Years that a teacher is assigned a formal mentor at Chicago Public Schools, zero. So, you know, you can kind of look at these statistics and say, well, there's ethics embedded here and we don't 
want to strip it of the ethics. We want to look at the ethics and ask ourselves, you know, kind of, kind of what is this? Who, 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 I guess one, who benefits, who made this stuff up, who benefits, who suffers that. And, and that's something you write about a lot. You, you, in your writing about maths education and about education in general, you center the experience of African-American kids, uh, Latinx kids, uh, indigenous kids. Why do you do that? Why do you center the kids who've been marginalized? Because not everybody can be free unless those who've been most oppressed are free. I mean, so, you know, queer, black, indigenous women need to be free in mathematics before anybody else can be free in mathematics. And what that means is if we think even just from, we go back to kind of an indigenous perspective, you know, we think about how people have been dispossessed of the knowings that they have. Well, first, one of the most important knowings that we have is that, you know, we are the younger brothers and sisters on this planet, that land and plants and animals and water and sky and every, have, for millennia have been here before us and have been performing mathematics. And so they are our teachers. So when we are asked to go into school and to divorce mind and body, to divorce connection to land, to all those kinds of things, that is, you know, that's an, that's an incredible violence that we're feeling. I think for other, for other cultures who have um, either um, been okay with being stripped of their ancient knowings, um, I think that that is less of a violence to people. And so we have to be able to say, you know, if we even just think about mathematics in its relation to the binary logic, I mean, that is, that is an onslaught. That's an ongoing violence to people who are two-spirit, to people mm. who, you know, um, don't operate with the, like, you're either male or female. Um, or, and, and we could say the same thing about, you know, why is it that we decide that numbers are either even or they're odd? We could decide that there's some other version of things and that that would be freeing for us to be able to, uh, again, relate to, to our animal and plant and land relatives because uh, not, all, not all plants are seen as, you know, following this Boolean logic and neither are animals. And so I think, you know, again, the ways in which we have continued to resist and to survive and to remake ourselves as indigenous and black um, and, and people of color has been to to maintain those roots, to maintain those ancient knowings that have um, continued to uh, to fuel us and to bring us joy. Um, I think that we have to know how to find joy in these oppressive states. And mm. so for us to ask for mathematics to be a version of joy is something that we would demand as part of being whole. Whereas maybe other people would feel like joy is not something that's that necessary because you haven't been in that space where it's been taken from you on a regular basis. You know, the, 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 you're making me think about so many things. The overlapping crises we're facing, the crisis of the environment, the crisis of capitalism, the crisis of, of race and, and, and colonialism, um, the crisis of government and health. Uh, are these overlapping crises providing, do you think, an opportunity not to return to normal, but to spring forward to something else? Do you think, do you think we're at a, a turning point where some of the ideas that you're, you've been thinking about your whole life um, can find purchase that they haven't been able to find in the past? 
That's what I've been saying. <laughs> I've been saying, you know, that this, you know, really it, it is. I mean, to be honest, I feel very, very seriously that, that land and water and animals and plants right now at this moment, there's an invitation. There's an mm. invitation for us to reassess and think, you know, what is the kind of mathematics that we want in our world? What is our relationship that we want with each other? I, I've been saying that, that we don't want to return to normal. We need to think of all of the ways that mathematics, that what's considered normal is dehumanizing and stripping of our, of our knowings. And what are the things that we want in its place? But um, basically asking, you know, if we, so for example, if we don't want to just return to normal, right now we're being at, we're not allowed to be in school buildings, mm. right? So I feel like that's an invitation right there to say, okay, if you're not in school buildings, what might learning and learning mathematics in particular look like outside of school buildings? What might it look like when you're connected to, what if land was your teacher? What are the things mm. that we can learn from plants? What are the ways we could think of pattern differently? And how does that help connect us and make us feel a sense of responsibility and, and a reciprocity for being grateful for those teachings that, that we're learning, right? Um, so I think that there's, right now, I think there's an opportunity um, for us to, you know, think why should we have to learn mathematics in a school building? Why couldn't we learn it in communities? Why couldn't we learn it in connection? to um to land in our other teachers and that would be good for all of us mm. the thing right now that mathematics mathematics needs a fuel source and the thing right now that mathematics is using as that fuel source is fear mm. people are learning mathematics out of fear they don't mm. want to look dumb they don't want to not have a job that pays well they don't want to not have a they, they don't want to be uh, they want to have opportunities to, you know, do all these things in their life that they think somehow is part of progress because we've, we've made it seem as if the STEM fields are the ones that help us move forward in society. <laughs> uh, we've crafted that narrative. But instead of thinking like, what are the things, why would you learn mathematics so that you don't miss out? But what if we said mathematics was to help us reattach to each other? Mm. Um, then, then it doesn't stop with like, are you viewed as smart? It's a, it would be something you would, for the rest of your life, you would be thinking mm. of pattern as a way to reattach to each other as humans and to reattach to land and waters. And that would be a, an ongoing thing. And that's a very different way of thinking about mathematics than this kind of gatekeeping, credentialing, um, sorting out of who's going to get the highest paying jobs and status in the world. Um, way of, of doing it. Yeah. I think, I think there's fear of ignorance. I also think that we're afraid to face the complexity and the, and the chaos and the, the kind of natural utopian anarchy of life as it's lived. I, you're making me think of a book I loved a couple of years ago called the overstory or overstory. I don't know if you read it, but it's a, a set of brilliant characters, but the book is really about trees. And I say it's about trees in the same sense that Moby Dick is about whales. It is, but not really. It's really about, it's about, it's about something else. But, but this book overstory, really the conclusion you draw and you get drawn deep into the woods, into the forest is that um, the trees are talking to each other and they're talking to us and we're not listening. We're not listening and we should listen. Um, and if we listened, 
it would take us into a very, very different place, uh, not just in understanding the environmental crisis, but understanding our place in the world and our our potential in the world, which we've, we're far from realizing. There's one other book that I was reading over the weekend after I spoke to you a week ago, and I, I pulled out a paragraph I wanted to share with you. It's a book, it's a book by John Berger, brilliant novelist, and the novel is called From A to X. And one of the characters, the narrator actually is a, is a pharmacist. She works in a pharmacy. And she says this, when somebody comes into the pharmacy to buy medicines, they're looking for some kind of order since every complaint is chaos. In a pharmacy, numbers and arithmetic take at once, again, a no-nonsense neatness they had on the blackboard at school. <laughs> is that, and then she says, how many capsules each dose? How many doses each day? During a meal? During how many days? The answers are remunerated several times and written on the packet. I hear people repeating the figures to themselves as they go out the door. Two on waking, three during the midday meal, two before bed, repeating them as if they're a telephone number. For like this, the silence of the unpredictable is kept at bay. And yet, when you think about that, that's, you know, and this is where I feel like mathematics kind of embeds in us this kind of compliance. Because when you are told, here's the, here's the, you know, algorithm, here's the, you know, recipe you need to follow, here's the, like, whatever the thing that you're supposed to do, there's the kind of expectation of deference exactly. to that. There's, there's an exactly. ignoring of what your body needs. We know that these are like, those are average doses for people, right? That's not considering right. how much you weigh, how much you work out, how, how affected right. you, how much you take medicine, how much, all of those kinds of things. So, you know, we get taught to right. ignore our own intuition, to ignore our bodies, to ignore the knowings that we carry with us, that our ancestors right. have planted within us, that our families continue to remind us of and we're expected to hand that over to somebody who's an expert right. because they know mathematics and because there's some kind of universal truth that we can't under we can't access because we're not smart enough. Um, and it's really a it's a dispossession of those knowings we carry with us. Right. And that's really Berger's point is that we we cling to it and it's a false god. I mean, my friend Maxine Green used to say, we all want certainty in an uncertain world. We all want a single pill for th this disease. We all want the vaccine. But that's not the answer. The answer is more complex, more complicated, more holistic than that. And I think that's Berger's point. And I think that's a great contribution that you're making. I'm counting on you to um, help us not return to normal as this pandemic recedes and to push on to something better. I really, really appreciate your spending this time with me, Rochelle. I, I admire your work so much, and I, I got a lot out of this last 40 minutes. But let's keep talking and keep doing the great work you're doing. Keep rising. Absolutely. Oh, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you about all of this. And uh, yeah, we'll continue to talk and we'll continue to work because there's a lot of work that needs to there's be done. There's a lot of work to do. Thank you so much and have a great day and a great week. You too. Take care. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. 
Thanks to our friends Damon and Daniel from the podcast Ergo, and to Malik Aleem, as always, producer, co-conspirator, and engineer. Under the Tree is written and hosted by Bill Ayers, produced and edited by me, Malik Aleem. Our music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life into a social algorithm of care and repair. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.